I want to go ahead and kind of, before we get into the scriptural things tonight, I want to kind of lay a foundation for what I believe this class is going to be, these classes are going to be. Uh, most of the people, as I look around this room, you have, you have been in a church, you've been a part of denominational teaching, you've been a part of what we would call traditionally Hebrew roots or some element of Hebrew roots, Hebraic roots, Torah observant, Messianic, Messianic Israel, whatever. You've been a part of some of those things uh, throughout your life. Uh, I want to preface these classes from the standpoint of I also come from that background since 2007. I just want to make sure that everybody is aware of that because some of the things that I am going to be sharing and scriptural references are going to be very counter to some of the things I have heard taught on a regular basis on some of these topics, i.e., tonight we're going to look at who Jesus is, who Yeshua is. And so I just want to make sure that I preface that before we go into this, that I also consider myself to be in that corner of Christianity. I have been since 2007. Um, but where I sit here today... And the reason why we're going to look at who Jesus is as the first, uh, first topic of study is this church is not founded on the Messianic faith. It's not founded on the Hebrew roots of our faith. It's not founded on anything other than Jesus. I just want to make that abundantly clear. And if that's offensive, I'm really sorry that I offended you, but I'm not going to step back from it. And so um, we haven't always been that way. There's been arguments and debates and that type of stuff, and that's okay. All of those are learning experiences. It doesn't mean that we're, we were right or we were wrong. I'm just saying from this point forward, when we look at the next couple of weeks of, of the canon and the scripture and how these things happen, we're looking at them through the lens of Jesus. When we look at the Sabbath, we're looking at the Sabbath through the lens of Jesus. And all the other topics and things that we go in, through over the next year or so, they're all going to be through the lens of the entire Bible. The entire Bible speaks of the narrative of Jesus, plain and simple. And so today, I'm going to lay that foundation, um, I hope, on why this is super important for us. Uh, I'm going to talk pretty fast because I promised you 45 minutes to an hour. I have a problem with that. I can confess my sins and my weaknesses. However, I've also written this in a way and gone through this with Brent that I'm going to be publishing a PDF uh, guide of all of my notes tomorrow. So some of the scripture references in that, if you don't get the notes or whatever, our hope is, is that the recording actually works as well. We'll rebroadcast that. We want this to be something that if you have a desire to go back and look at or share it or whatever, that's available to you. I don't want you to just take my word for anything. I want you to press into the scriptures, husbands and wives together. I want also at the end, if there's some questions, uh, I want to have time to be able to do that and answer those. And if we don't have the answer, I want to be able to take a note and I want to be able to go and look at that and hopefully provide you an answer that has a biblical background. So uh, today, there's two main terms I want to talk about. The first one I want to talk about is hypostatic union. Anybody ever heard the term hypostatic union before? Okay, I, I knew you were going to be there. Brent's not even allowed to raise his hand. Uh, hypostatic union is a term that uh, we all really need to be familiar with. It, it sounds very fancy. It sounds very scholarly, but I'm in a sweatshirt that I designed myself. So it's not. It's simple, just like myself. It's a simple term. The definition, hypostatic actually means personal. And the definition is that it is a personal union of the two natures of Jesus, the fully human nature and the fully divine nature. Jesus wasn't divided. So when we talk about two natures, it wasn't like he was two different people. He was one. He was akad, the Hebrew word that everybody in this room knows. That's about as Hebrew as I'm going to get today. I'm sorry. Uh, he was akad in the dual nature of fully divine, fully human. 
This is an important part of understanding our Christology. Christology is the second term I wanna, I wanna go through. This is another term that I would like for all of us in the church to be familiar with because our Christology shapes our faith. Christology's definition is our theology that relates to the person, the nature, and the role of Yeshua, Christ Jesus. If your Christology is messed up, if it's out of line, if it is skewed one way or the other, this will shape every single thing you read in the Bible. I just want, I want to make that abundantly clear. If your Christology isn't in line with the nature of God, everything else becomes skewed. And we see that, us more than a lot of people, because we have, we have these debates on who's Jesus, what is Jesus, what was his role, what was this, and sooner or later we're not even talking about Jesus anymore, we're talking about ancient cosmology, and we're talking about was the serpent really a serpent, and everything is on the table for us to throw out the word of God, and all of a sudden we think that we were somehow invited to the divine council, and we get to speak as gods. We do not get to speak as gods. Our job is to let God speak for himself. And so in our corner of Christianity, it is important to make sure that our Christology aligns with the scripture itself. Man, there's been some apostasy in our corner on the role and the nature and how Jesus is and interacts. And that will shape what we do. So the plurality of God and the roles and the natures of God, this isn't a Christian theology. It's not something that started with Rome. It wasn't something that the Baptists came up. The Christian church didn't come up with this. The plurality of the natures and the roles of God was actually something that came from Judaism. Now, modern Judaism will try to refute that. They'll say there was never a duality. There was never a plurality. God is just one. It can't be. That's just simply not true. A a simple Google search will prove multiple Jewish sources, early writings, that there was at least a duality concept in their brain. And so Christianity actually has a part of that from Judaism. So a lot of times we've been taught in our Christology, well, Judaism in the Hebraic thought never had a a duality or a a triune God or that wasn't even open to that. That's just simply not true. And so when you believe that, oh, well, Rome came up with it, or, or the Greeks, this is the wrong time to talk about the Greeks, but the, the Greeks came up with it, or, or some, some Anglo-Christian came up with this concept. It's like, well, we're opposed to the roots of Jesus and the apostles. Well, we're not, because Judaism as a whole, early on, had no problem with the duality of God. We see that, we see that early on in the Torah. Take the Mishnah, take the Talmud, take all the rabbis' writings out. You have the Spirit of God hovering over the water, and in other places in the books of Moses, he's talking about God the Father. So there's already, there's already two different roles and natures of God at play there. So when we get to the New Testament, this isn't a New Testament concept. And I just want to make sure we understand that, because I know a lot of times it's been said, well... You can't have a Trinitarian God. You can't have multiple gods. He has to be one. And this is why the whole Christian theology and Christian concept is is just anti to the roots of the faith. And it simply is not. The Torah is, is very, very much about the duality of God's nature. Um, the Trinity itself is not explicitly written about in the Scripture. There's not a verse in, the, in, in Luke chapter, and he's like, and when I looked upon the Trinity, it then it's not there. 
That, that, that terminology is not there. But like a lot of other concepts and themes in the Bible, it's interwoven into the entire narrative of the story from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, the same thing with the hypostatic union. It's, it's in the entire narrative of the Bible. And so as we start off tonight, I just want to make sure that we understand I am not going to give you all the answers on how this all works. And the reason why I'm not going to be able to give you all the answers, and you can say, well, that's fine, we'll get it from Brent. Brent's not going to be able to give you all the answers, and Brent's way smarter than me. So, see? When two or three in an agreement, God is here. See? Right? There you go, Brent. But there is no way that we can fully understand this. And that's part of the problem we have in our Western culture is we like to take things apart, we like to grip it, and we like to understand it. We like to understand what makes this tick. How does this tick? Why does this tick? Well, Paul in his writings to Timothy said that there's a mystery. And if Paul, of all people, felt like this whole concept of Jesus and the roles and the natures, if that was a mystery, and he's talking to Timothy, two guys who helped revolutionize the world, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those guys, then I can promise you some 40-something-year-old in a man bun in a Yeshua sweatshirt is not going to give you some divine revelation smarter than them. So uh, I want to make sure we understand that because 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So there was a mystery to Paul in his writings, Timothy, Paul to Timothy, that there's this mystery of this godliness, how this all forms and how this all fits. So for 17 years, I've heard a lot of people teach, we can have the answers. There's this answers. We can unlock the key. We can unlock the key. That might be true in some respects, but when it comes to the hypostatic union of Jesus, when it comes to fully understanding how the godliness works, Paul himself says that there is a mystery there, and so there's got to be a mystery now, too, when we're going through that. So leave yourself some room there to understand that there's going to be some things maybe that we just don't get answers on until we get to sit face-to-face. And in that, I find peace personally. But let's look now at a couple of key reasons why I believe Jesus was both fully God and fully human. Number one, Jesus called, was called God, yet he was human like us. In John chapter 1, 1, nobody even needs to pull out the Bible app on this one. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. For many, many years, and still happens, anybody who spends any time on social media, um, we have written our own version of the scripture. And we say, in the beginning was the Torah. And the Torah was God. And the Torah was with God. Has anybody, am I the only one who's ever heard that phrase or that terminology? Okay, thank you. Everybody else is just looking at me like, oh, I never heard that. I, you're better than me to stay off Facebook then. That is an incomplete translation of what this passage in John is saying. I just want to make sure we understand that. I hope we're all past that, but I just want to make sure that's an incomplete representation of what John is trying to say. The word for word there doesn't even mean a scribe's handwriting. It is the essence, the memra of God. And so, started with the easy one. In the beginning was the essence. The essence was with God, and the essence was God. In the beginning was Jesus, was the Spirit, 
was God the Father and probably other things that we still fully don't understand. In the end, will be the same things that were there in the beginning. Cyclical or linear, however you look at it, it really doesn't change. Because if the beginning is the same as the end and it's linear, then the beginning is the same as the end. And no matter where we're at, whenever it ends, it'll be the same as the beginning. If we're cyclical, because that's another concept. Well, when I didn't think like a Greek anymore and I, I have a Hebraic thought process, we don't think linear anymore, we think cyclical. Okay, that's fine. You should arrive at the same exact conclusion if you're using the Word of God properly, whether it's linear or it's cyclical. God is the same yesterday, today, and wherever we're at on that point, the end will be the same as the beginning. Cyclical or linear, it should be the same. They shouldn't necessarily be opposed to each other. But again, Western concept, a lot of times we like to be opposed because something has to be right, something has to be wrong. It has to fit the box. Number two, Jesus had a body of flesh, but was the fullness of God. Colossians 2, 9 says, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, though, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus shows himself to the disciples and asks them to see his hands and his feet to verify that he's more than just a spirit. Now, this is important because he didn't just pop out in some sort of Casper the ghost type of spirit and say, you know me, you can recognize me. No, he came and he said, prove it. Brent did a teaching uh, six months ago, seven months ago, called the decisive uh, Thomas, rather than the doubting Thomas. Thomas knew how to prove whether Jesus was who he said he was, and that was, show me your hands, show me your feet. So when he shows himself in Luke chapter 24, 39, he is showing the disciples, I am in my body the fullness of the deity of God. He's showing that to them to establish once again he wasn't just a man. This wasn't some sort of voodoo. This was, this was an amazing life-altering event that was happening. Number three, Jesus was alive before Abraham. Shortly after Jesus stating in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God in John chapter 1, we see that Jesus states that he was alive before Father Abraham. John chapter 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The patriarch system of Judaism in Jesus' time, see, they, they believed in Mashiach, an anointed one. Mashiach was, was a high man, a man of tremendous honor. It's okay. You don't need paper, Jess. It's okay. Hey, I got some paper for you right here. This is special crisp paper. There you go. Just don't turn it over because it says deck the halls. There's already enough rumors out there. The patriarch system of Judaism, they already believed in the spirit because you can't get over the fact that the, the text says the spirit hovered over the water, formed. Okay, so we have the spirit. They believed in Mashiach. Abraham was a Mashiach to Judaism. It is an anointed one. It is a mighty man. David, King David, was a Mashiach. However, they also believed in a messianic age, that this Mashiach, this anointed one, there would be this great one that would come. This is part of why we had the conflict with the first coming of Jesus, not coming as this mighty conquering king and coming as the suffering servant. And so Judaism as a whole had a system of which they were looking for Mashiachs, looking for Davids, looking for Abrahams, these mighty men who created timeline establishments for them 
that, hey, look, God is still here. God is still working on our behalf. God is with us. And so that patriarch system that, that, that was in place, Jesus was very aware of that system. All the apostles grew up in that system. This wasn't foreign to them. They, they knew this. We, we talked about it, I think, a couple of weeks ago uh, when Brent reversed back to Jesus having the interaction with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most intelligent religious leaders of that day, and they're debating back and forth, and they're like, our father is Abraham. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He knew the clout that Abraham had. He, he knew that. That was not foreign to him. So when he's making statements like this, he's making very, very definitive, almost to them, blasphemous statements. Like, how dare you? You're not a mighty man. You're not a Mashiach. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. And he's saying, I was here before Abraham. Now that's important because Luke chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, it clearly states that Jesus was born a human, during the reign of Caesar Augustus, not 2,000 years earlier when Abraham was alive and walking on the earth. Yet here again we see Jesus gives an account of the contrasting natures of himself. In Luke, the testimony is he was born of a baby during the time of Caesar Augustus. However, in John, he's saying, well, before Abraham I was. So the human form had a start and an end time. But the divine nature of Jesus transcends this finite time clock that we have. That's why it always baffles me when people say, like, oh yeah, he was a Mashiach, he was, he, was a, he was a great man, he was an anointed man. And it's like, just give me one other example. Give me, where's Abraham? Did he come out of the grave? Give me David. Moses, Moses, an amazing man. He was a prophet sent to foreshadow what Mashiach would do. Where was their resurrection testimony? Like, if it happened, we would know about it because Judaism would document it. It would be how they do things. There would be no question about this whatsoever. But because Yeshua, Jesus, came and was an outcast, he wasn't what they expected, there's been more of an attempt to change history and project why he cannot be than there was to simply allow themselves to maybe receive the power of the Holy Spirit and the opening of the veil of their eyes, that he was one of them. He was the anointed one. He came for them. He loved them, and he still does to this day. Obviously, we're still here. We're still alive. There's still hope. There's still prayers that we give for that. Number four, Jesus knew everything, yet still increased in wisdom. John chapter 21, verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, good old Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. That's kind of like me going to my son or my daughters before bed. And it's like, do you love dad? Yes, I love dad. Do you love dad? Yes, I love dad. Do you love dad? Yes, I love dad. You know I love you, dad. It's a similar type of interaction in the sense of like, Jesus knew everything. Jesus knew that Simon Peter loved him. Now, obviously, there was the denial and there was some, you know, there's some issues there. Never happened in our dynamics with our friends or our families or our children. We've never done that. But Jesus knew that Simon Peter loved him. 
He knew that. Yet it says here, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you after he asked him three times. John documents Jesus' conversation with Peter after his resurrection where Peter acknowledges that he knows Jesus knows everything. The hair on your head. He knows what you did last summer. That's like a 90s emo movie reference for you. Like, he knows everything. And so John documents this, yet again in the Gospel of Luke. We've got to keep going back to Luke's testimonies here. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 52, it states, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This was Luke, chapter 2, 52. Jesus knew everything, as documented in John, but then in Luke, he's growing in wisdom. Well, if he knew everything, then wouldn't he already be the wisest of the wise? So it's the contrast again of the dual natures of Jesus in his life. Number five, Jesus was tempted yet without sin. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Hebrews chapter 4, 15, not stealing Brent's thunder. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus, the Son of God, God as Son, did not sin. Now, just for the sake of the recording and for the sake, if you go back and listen, uh, I want to make a side note here because I use some terminology, the Son of God and God as Son, and I want to make sure that I give you some scripture references to go review for that terminology. Colossians 1, verses 13 through 16, and always read before, read after the references I give you to make sure you have the context, but the specific elements of that terminology is defined in there, and so I'm going to give those specific references. Once again, it'll be on the video. I will give out these notes too if you have a desire to go back and review that. Um, You'll have that as well. John chapter 1, 1 through 3, John chapter 17, 3 through 5, Romans chapter 8, verses 29, uh, the gospel to the Hebrews, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, Isaiah 53, 4 through 5, Daniel 7, 12 through 14, and Matthew eleven twenty-seven. Jesus was tempted, the gospel of Matthew tells us, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was tempted, yet he was without sin. He was tempted, yet he was without sin. Well, if we look at that, then Hebrews chapter 4 adds a piece to the puzzle. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. What's our weakness? Sinful nature, sinful desire. We get tempted, we fall prey to it. We get tempted, we fall prey to it. I'm not above anybody else. I get tempted, I fall prey to it. You bring me a key lime pie, it's gone, gluttony. So, like, I understand this. A good dual IPA, it's on. So I understand. But Jesus was tempted, but did not sin. So we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet did not get drunk. Yet did not give himself over to gluttony. Didn't give himself over to sexual immorality. He didn't give himself over to the temptation. This is the difference between us as humans and Jesus as human nature with his divine nature, is that he was tempted and he did not give into it. So Hebrews chapter 4 would then imply that Jesus would be functioning as our high priest. This is where we get off. We get off the rabbit trail, we, we lose our mind, and we immediately say, well, if Jesus is our high priest, 
He's in the temple. He's doing just the things that, that Aaron and his sons were doing, and he's limited. Now, once again, we've taken a dual nature, a hypostatic union of divine nature, physical nature, and we've said, well, because he's called the high priest, he can only do what the high priest did. Well, you have the contrary natures of Jesus. There's a divine nature, and if there's a divine nature and there's a heavenly high priest, we don't even know nothing about that. We ain't never seen it. We don't, like, we have very few things. We, we write books and books and books about Melchizedek and all this, and we know very little. And now where we sit today, we know very little about the Levitical priesthood and what Aaron and the sons did. We know the historical account from a biblical standpoint, but most of us have never seen it. Most of us have never been a part of it. If you have, it's not real because it doesn't exist right now. So I'm just saying. I'm not going to say you haven't seen it. Some people have visions and dreams. But, like, it's just not real, real. Like, it's not, like, tangible. Like, I can touch this. Like, it's not real. So Jesus would be operating as our high priest. That doesn't mean that Jesus somehow is lower than divinity. Everything else is thrown out the window, and he's just some glorified Aaron. That's not what that means. We can't make that jump. And I have heard that jump made many, many times for people to say, well, he's the ambassador, he's the high priest, and he's not God, and he doesn't do this, and he doesn't do this, and he doesn't do that. Well, that defies the majority of what the text of the Bible says, and they use this passage right here to quantify going down that rabbit hole, going down that trail, and it's a dangerous one to go down. If you start to minimize the role of Jesus, who he is, his nature, you're on a one-way ticket to apostasy. It may be one year, it may be seven years, it may be 20 years. I've been doing this for 17 years. When Jesus isn't God and Jesus isn't what the Bible says he is, and you can define that however you want, it ends up in destruction. Because sooner or later, you equate the word of God to be equal with God himself. You then don't need God himself anymore because if I can do the word, then I can be okay. And if that was the case... Why do we have the New Testament? Why do we have Jesus? Why do we have all this? Why aren't all the Jews saved? Why aren't you all flocking to Judaism if we can somehow keep the Torah perfect? If we can somehow do those things? Why, throw out all the other things. I'm in a room with gods. That's, that's basically what this ends up becoming. If something you can do on your own can equate you to that level, then you are a god. And... Unfortunately, that's also how a lot of cults go. Well, I've achieved some sort of level of spirituality, so you're here to achieve my level of spirituality. If you stop at my level of spirituality, then you're in trouble. You should be, every day of your life, seeking by the power of the Holy Spirit to get to where Jesus says to you, not Pastor Chris, not Pastor Brent, Jesus says to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the most important thing. But if Jesus doesn't have that influence or that authority of your life, then I guess you get to look at yourself in the mirror on the day of judgment and say, well done, good and faithful, sexy. Like, it's, if that's the case, uh, we're in trouble. I would rather have Jacob judge me than me judge myself. So, and you can be very cruel. So, <laughs> Number six, praying. What time is it? I don't have that on my iPad. I'm doing good. Number six, praying to Jesus and Jesus praying. We pray to Jesus, yet Jesus prays. Well, I've heard this a lot. You, you can't pray to Jesus. You only pray to the Father. Hmm. If only there was stuff in the Scripture that talked about that. 
Oh, wait, there is. Acts chapter 7, 59. Anybody know the story of Stephen? Not Stephen Drew, Stephen from the Bible, Stephen from the book of Acts. Okay, so Stephen was martyred for his faith. And yet it says here in Acts chapter 7, 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That alone, in a time of being martyred for his faith, he didn't cry out Adonai, El Shaddai, Yahuwah, Yahweh, all the different names and pronunciations, even the ones that we've made up and the ones that exist in the text. He cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, if Jesus isn't God, what kingdom is, is Stephen trying to go to? Because if God the Father sits on the throne in the heavenlies and he is the only one of who you can he can receive your spirit into the heavenly realm, then where does Stephen try to go? Because if Jesus is not there with God, if he is not at the right hand, if he has not been given all authority and majesty, if that doesn't exist, if, if we're off on our theology, on our Christology, then where's Stephen trying to go? Because he's obviously not trying to go to the heavenly realm with Yahweh, Adonai, El Shaddai, El Gabor. Stephen must know something that we are still struggling with in modern-day Christianity. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen had no problem praying to Jesus when he was dying. And... <laughs> Yet on Jesus' last night of the betrayal, he prayed to the Father, which would tie us back again to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. What is commonly known as the high priestly prayer. Hebrews chapter 4, where we talked about that we have a high priest who was tempted, yet didn't give in to sin. That is traditionally known as the high priestly prayer. And so when Jesus is praying to the Father in the garden, Stephen prays to Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, I'm dying. When Jesus knows he's getting ready to be turned over and he's getting ready to be handed to his crucifixion, he's getting ready to die, he, he prays the high priestly prayer to his father. So we have two conflicts. One point in time, somebody's praying to Jesus, but we also have a lot of accounts of Jesus praying. John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I also want to take a real quick sidebar on, on this here. When you look at the Greek words there, and we can argue over if there's Aramaic or if there's Hebrew transcripts of the New Testament, I've yet to see one that anybody believes is authentic. I know there's ministries that say that. They've written books about it. They've made thousands of dollars on that. There's no consensus from anybody historically that will say that the manuscripts were original manuscripts that we can, we can take as gospel and go forward. So the Greek word there, it's not Yahweh. It doesn't reference back to Adonai. It doesn't reference back to a lot of the other things. It's Father. Alyssa's here, so it's more in the vein of Daddy. So in the modern context. And so it shows the intimacy of a son. And so this terminology, dad, the hour has come, glorify your son, that me as the son can glorify you, dad. It's that type of concept. And so here we have Acts where Stephen is praying to Jesus to receive his spirit. And we have multiple situations here where Jesus is praying to his father. The father chose to glorify the son. And we know from the Orphan Spirit series, the son only does what he sees the father. And he reiterates that over and over again because the disciples are like, hey, just show us the Father. Just show us the Father. And he's like, I'm here. What you see is the work of my Father. 
Well, if his father is God and he is here, and what you, if you're looking upon him, it's just another telltale sign. Like, so he's lesser than God? Well, then his statements to his students doesn't make sense. His statements to his students lead them astray. What you see in me is a reflection of my father because I only do what my father does. Number seven, Jesus gives and is life, yet he died. John chapter 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We can take everything else out, and I know we can't do that because we, we've all come from an area where we get in the Hebrew and the Greek and we argue every jot and every tittle, anything. That out of his mouth should be sufficient for us. If we're good sons and daughters, it should be sufficient. When I look at my children and I say, stop, they better stop. Now, we can talk afterwards, but they better obey the voice. If I say, you're a Frankie and we don't do that, oh, we'll do whatever we want, then you're in rebellion. You are not mine. You're rebelling against us, our family, our tree, who we are, our identity. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, who all of a sudden seems to think that they get to charter a new pathway to the kingdom of God? And we have, and we all know people in this room, we know somebody who has a whole, like, whiteboard conspiracy theory. If we do this, and the stars align, and Leo comes out, and on the third day, and we can make it. It would have been easier if you just bought the Kool-Aid, got the t-shirt, and went to the top of the mountain. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm not Jesus. I'm going to take him at his word. So if I want to get into the presence of the Father, if by some chance the other scriptures are incorrect, if by some chance, I don't believe it, I don't believe there's any case for it. But if somehow, if Jesus and the Father aren't one, if they're two separate things, I can't get to the Father without the Son. John chapter 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus alone gives eternal life. One of the greatest ironies is that the one who offers and gives the gift of eternal life is also the one who experienced physical death for the very people he was offering life to. Jesus didn't just tell us how to live. He modeled it. He showed us. Matthew 27, 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. No one took Jesus' spirit he gave it up. Only God can save. No one forced God to do anything. He chose to do that. Jesus is God, and we are not. Jesus can give eternal life, and yet at the same point in time, he also gave his life. And I think that's important for us to understand. So as we conclude today, Jesus had two distinct natures. One was fully human, and one was divine. There was no intermingling there was no schizophrenia between the two natures that were there. Jesus has been God for all eternity. That's what the scripture says before Abraham, before in the beginning, before anything. Again, in the beginning, before Abraham, if it's linear, if it's a Greek mentality. In the beginning, I was. So forever, 1,000 years, 20,000 years, 50 million years, 2 billion years, it doesn't matter. At the beginning, I was. If the end is the same as the beginning, I was. It doesn't change. In a Greek thought process, it doesn't change. 
just for a specific period of time. The divine nature of God didn't change. For a specific period of time, he took on the nature of a human in that timeline. Same thing, if we're thinking from a Hebraic or a Hebrew thought process, a cyclical, the beginning is the same as the end. Okay, well, however many times you've got to go in that circle to get to the end of all ends that are there, for a tiny period of time, maybe it was 5 to 6 o'clock on the clock, I, I don't know, but for a tiny period of time, the nature of God, the divine nature of Jesus was the same. But for a tiny period of time, he took on the human nature to show us and to bring us back to the entire narrative of Scripture. The entire narrative of Scripture is not to give us a Moses. It's not to give us a David. It's not to give us a Stephen. It's not to give us an, a Paul. It was to put us back into communion with our Father in the garden. Now, whether that garden looks exactly the same as it did in the beginning of creation or it's something different, the concept is the same. God wants to be in relationship with you. That's what his covenants are for. You have to decide whether or not you want to continue in that relationship, in that covenant, and what you want to look like. A lot of us have friendship relationships. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? It's good. Blessed and highly favored. Yeah, awesome. Is that the relationship you want with God? You see him once a week, you see him twice a week. That's a friend zone. Is Jesus in the friend zone? Number two, we're followers. I follow your posts, I follow you, you call me, you need me, we go hang out a little bit. It's a little bit more than a friend, like we kind of got a bond that's there. Maybe that's the relationship you want with, with Jesus. And then there's the familiar, familia relationship. That's the family. That's a, when I wake up, you're there. When I go to sleep, you're there. When I'm mad, you're there. When I'm happy, you're there. When you need something, I'm there. When you don't need something, I'm there. We're family. We're there all the time. We do life together. We have each other's backs. I want you to think about your relationship with Jesus. I want you to think about it. Is he friend-zoned? Are you more in the follower? Or are you family? And it's okay wherever you're at. That's okay. But Jesus wants you to be a part of the family. He doesn't want just that specific amount of time that you're going to give him on your loop or on your linear, linear timeline. He wants to be all of that with you. He wants to shepherd you. He wants to guide you. He wants to be there with you. By becoming the human for the period of time, God the Son took on a nature that he didn't previously have. Think about how much he loved us that he would take having this divine nature, looking around at our human nature, and he said, I love you enough that I'm going to come take on that. I'm going, to take, I'm going to go ahead and take my tux off. I'm going to take my black tie off. And I'm going to go ahead and put on the filthiest of rags and come and love you, show you I love you, and then I'm going to give up my spirit and my life so that you can have life abundantly. That's what Jesus did. While the scripture shows us that the two natures of God, two, shows us two natures of God, it is explicit about the fact that Jesus was just one person. This, what, Jesus wasn't multiple people and interacting in and out of these different natures and things. He was one. And we must understand that never throughout history has there been another human being who had the fully human nature and the fully God nature inside one body of flesh and bones. The apostles go to great lengths to preserve the miraculous events of this life, of God in the flesh, of Jesus' life, the life of Jesus. So who is Jesus? The Bible tells us that he is absolutely everything. And I need you to understand that because as we move forward as a church, Look, I understand we're at all different points on our walk. 
I understand we've had different teachers and we've had different churches and some have come from denominational backgrounds and some still have internet teachers and you have face-to-face -face teachers and that's fine, that's awesome. But when you strip all of that away, if all that doctrine and theology and ideology, if Christ is not the cornerstone of that, sooner or later, you're going to have a massive crisis of belief. Now, how can I say that? I can say that on a semi-expert opinion in this corner of Christianity, because I've seen it at least, at least 1,000, probably more closer to multiple thousands of lives who have done that. The moment Christ is not the cornerstone of your life, of your faith, of your walk, sooner or later, it'll be the earth shape. It'll be a name. It'll be a practice. It'll be, it'll be something that becomes idolatry. And I, I want to be very clear about that on record here. It's idolatry. Because at the end, Christ is the center and the cornerstone of all faith. Anything comes off of him. If something becomes the cornerstone of your faith and replaces Jesus, you live in Oklahoma. That's a dangerous place to not have a safe foundation. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Spiritually and physically. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and open up for any questions. Brent's going to talk, too, on some of these because he's definitely smarter than me. Um, any questions in regards to, to Jesus? Anything we talked about tonight? Um, anything? I hit it out of the park. You guys are so kind. I was really struggling with self-worth today, but you, you really helped me. So, <laughs> Thanks, Eric.